This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Sheila Ogilvie about her new book, The European Guilds and Economic Analysis. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, as you may be able to hear from my accent, I grew up in the western Canadian city of Calgary, but I went off to have adventures at the age of 17, and I ended up at a university in Scotland, the University of St. Andrews. And after that, I studied in Cambridge, and I've lived in Scotland, Germany, England, the US, the Czech Republic. And I'm currently based in the UK, where I'm professor of economic history at the University of Cambridge. Um, and I teach the last 800 years of economic history to economics undergraduates. Wow, that's quite a range that you cover in your uh, discipline there. Yeah, I enjoy it. And it's quite nice to um, be able to make many centuries of economic activity make sense to students who probably turn up at university thinking, okay, I'm going to study the 21st century. And then they realize there are lots of things you can learn from the past. What I think that comes across in your book is the 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 breadth of of time and the, and the scope of activity that you uh, address in it. What was it that led you to write uh, a book about the European guilds and, and more specifically an economic analysis of them? Well, there are two things. One is that um, several decades ago, when I was a young graduate student um, working on my PhD in German economic history, I came across a series of little quarto handwritten guild account books for a weaver's guild in the Black Forest of the Southwest German Duchy of Württemberg. And when I opened these little booklets, I found that they must not have been opened since they were first written because the sand that was sprinkled on them to dry the ink was still stuck to the handwriting. So I realized once I started reading them 
that these gave a very detailed micro-level account of what these rural weavers were doing with their guild, the kind of lobbying they were doing, the kind of ways they were trying to keep out competitors, but also the uh, the social activities they engaged in, the drinking sessions they um, organized, the way that they went to each other's weddings and funerals. And so that was sort of the core of my PhD work, which was back in the 80s. And then over the intervening decades, I kept on coming back to how interesting guilds were. And about five or six years ago, I thought, actually, it's time to go back to guilds and maybe to find out how typical this guild was that I had studied long ago for the many tens of thousands of guilds that existed all over Europe between the 11th century and the 19th century. And so that was what gave rise to this particular huge book. One of the things I learned from reading it at the start was appreciating that we use the word guild to describe a lot of things and that it helps to gain an understanding of it, not just in a historical context, but also an economic context. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit what exactly were European guilds, both as institutions and this notion of their uh, role in a medieval and early modern economy? Well, the formal definition of the word guild in English is that it's very general. It's an association of people who share certain interests and wish to pursue common purposes. And these common purposes can be um, economic, they can be religious, they can be welfare-oriented, they can be for sociability, they can be for organizing cultural practices like the mystery plays um, that the medieval guilds organized in, uh, in, in England. But most of the guilds that we have records of were based on occupation, and most of them pursued economic purposes. And they, they, you do find guilds in antiquity. They then, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they then sort of disappear from um, from the records during the the so-called Dark Ages, and then they come back into view after about the year one thousand. And for the next eight hundred years or so, they dominated. Um, crafts and industries, crafts, in fact, not just industrial activities, but also many services, um, uh, and and sort of organized the way that the practitioners um, uh, regulated each other and regulated whether other people could practice those activities. And so um, what a guild did was that it had legal privileges from the political authorities, giving its members the exclusive right to practice a particular occupation in a particular place. And that meant that the members of the guild had a monopoly over producing specific goods and services. And they also had what's called a monopsony, the right of being the sole buyer over purchasing and using particular inputs. So they might have a, a exclusive right to the key raw material that they used in what they produced. And then in order to enforce its monopoly and monopsony privileges, a guild uh, had the right to limit entry to the occupation. Um, so everyone who 
wanted to practice that occupation had to become a member of the guild. And then the guild could decide who could become a member and who couldn't. And the guild also had the right to restrict the quantity of goods and services that were provided in that, in that occupation to set the prices for its output, usually above the competitive level. And a key thing, uh, it had the right to set it, the prices, the costs for its inputs below the competitive level, and that included the wages of its workers. And that was one thing that gave rise to a lot of labor unrest over the centuries was that especially the apprentices and journeymen um, who were paid these very, very low wages by their gilded masters um, would go out in the streets from time to time and have a riot just to protest this. So that was essentially the economic activities that guilds engaged in. That might seem like a long definition to some people, but reading your book makes it clear that you need to go into that degree of detail to explain these various institutions, how you would have these towns that would have multiple guilds, one for each different profession, and you describe how they, they would vary in size, uh, they would uh, vary in terms of their rights. That it, 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 We use this label for guilds, and yet it applied to so many different organizations throughout uh, all these kingdoms and municipalities uh, throughout Europe during the Middle Ages and the early modern era. Yes, that's right. They were incredibly various. You could have a guild consisting of just four masters in some arcane occupation side by side with another guild that had 300 masters. Um, it would They varied in size, they varied in strength. The average wealth of the guild members um, varied a lot. So you had guilds of goldsmiths and, uh, you know, very rich merchants and retailers who were extremely, um, extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. And then you had guilds of chimney sweeps and rag pickers and um, incredibly um, lowly occupations that weren't very skilled or at least used skills that didn't, that, that you could learn fairly quickly. And the other thing is that guilds, of course, um, changed over time so that although we say, you know, guilds existed from the year 1000 to the year 1883, um, there was a tendency for guilds to get weaker in some parts of Europe and indeed stronger in others over that eight or 900 year period. One of the areas with uh, regarding guilds with which I had some familiarity before I read your book was their relationship with the governments uh, in their areas. And yet I found that in your examination of them that you do, you describe all these elements of which uh, I, I thought were you know very interesting and not oft, as often discussed. What exactly was the relationship of guilds with governments? And, and to what degree was it reciprocal? And to what degree did, did, did one uh, side of it have power or authority over the other? That's a good question because I think there there's been a tendency to in uh, both in the sort of old fashioned romantic historiography on guilds and in some of the in fact the modern um, sort of theoretical uh, 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 economic approaches to guilds to think of guilds as being so called private order institutions so in a sense. Uh, a group of people that just got together spontaneously without any involvement of the public authorities and decided that they were going to form an association and start sort of um, regulating their occupation. And in fact, once you begin to look at it, you see that 
as soon as guilds emerged in the 11th century, what you see is that they're asking the town government or the ruler for a charter or an ordinance, giving them the right to exist and the right to limit entry to the occupation, to decide who was allowed to be a member of the guild and to enforce their monopoly. So right from the beginning, you see guilds asking for public recognition. It didn't mean that the guild became a, a part of the public sector, but they had a very close collaborative relationship either to the town government or to the prince or whoever was the, the political authorities at that time. Uh, in some places, they even become part of the government at, at times and have a certain degree of authority there. You also describe, though, how they play this financial role for a lot of these governments that is uh, very important to the ability of these governments to uh, to, to prosper. That, yes, that was an interesting thing that I found out. So when I was re doing the research for this book, I was reading it, the little case studies that had been done of individual guilds all over Europe. I think I ended up finding that my bi my bibliography was longer than a thousand items. So I must have read a lot of case studies. And I collected a lot of observations of the relationship between guilds and governments, and in particular, for the benefit which guilds provided to governments. Because you see governments granting guilds ordinances and charters, which give them these really valuable rights to act as little cartels. And you think, well, okay, the guild masters are getting something really good out of this, but what is it that's persuading rulers and town governments to give these privileges to these groups of small businessmen? And I actually ended up collecting over 700 observations of the stream of benefits which guilds were providing to governments. And it was very interesting because they sometimes paid in cash to the ruler in exchange for getting their ordinance that gave them a, a particular exclusive right to, to dominate their occupation. Sometimes they promised and indeed delivered to the the state a share of the revenues that they collected. Um, sometimes they were turned to by the government when the government uh, needed some money for some urgent purpose, usually a military purpose. Guilds paid regular taxes. They helped the government to collect taxes. And as you just mentioned, they made very favorable loans to the government, sometimes a bit involuntarily. So, for instance, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth of England would turn to the livery companies, which were that which was the name that was given to the guilds of London, at intervals throughout the 16th century and ask for a quote loan, which in the end was a kind of loan that didn't have to be repaid. So the assumption was that it was going to be called a loan, but that Queen Elizabeth was not going to pay it back to the livery companies. So they have this, you know, sometimes there's this degree of coercion that's taking place, but in return, they, you, as you've already uh, mentioned, they have an, an enormous uh, degree of authority in their particular uh, economic realm. And when it comes to uh, regulating their profession, when it comes to regulating the economic activities within uh, that that region that they have over which they have an authority, and, and it really seems that 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 you know as as coercive as it was that the guilds did have considerable did gain considerable benefits from that relationship. 
Yes, they did. I think if you look at the kind of things that the kind of privileges they got, as I mentioned, it gave them the right to act as a sort of little cartel over their particular sector of the economy. And um, although we're, of course, talking about a pre-statistical era, so we don't have the kind of records that modern economists have of how cartels operate in present-day developing economies, um, the there are enough observations of guilds' ability to um, charge higher than competitive prices that it's possible to do what I did in the book, which was to calculate the average price gap between the, um, the price charged by gilded producers and non-gilded producers of the same good or service. And the estimated difference was actually that the guild was charging an average of over 40% more than the non-gilded producers, which are similar to the prices charged by cartels in present-day Pakistan and Turkey. So they're at the sort of extreme end of cartel pricing. Um, guilds uh, restricted supply so that they would be able to charge these very high prices. And again, the estimated average size of their supply restriction was that they were reducing supply by about 45% compared to the technically feasible level of production. Um, and they were imposing entry barriers. So they were um, deciding who was allowed to practice um, that occupation and who wasn't. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that last point just a little bit further, particularly with regard to how they controlled the number of practitioners. You, you have an entire chapter which you uh, go over how they manage the entry into their various professions. It, how exactly did they go about that? And, and, and in what ways did that uh, reflect uh, some of the, the, the power in these relationships that you've talked about? Well, they started out by defining certain groups that were by virtue of their identity not going to be allowed into guilds. So females, about, well, over 99.5% of guilds in Europe simply excluded females from bec um, becoming apprentices and, uh, and working as independent masters. So females were basically excluded by guilds. There were a very few, a tiny handful of guilds that of all female guilds, about 50 of them. And then there were a few uh, mixed sex guilds, but the, the other tens of thousands of guilds in Europe were all male. Um, Jews were basically in principle excluded from European guilds. There were, there were a few exceptions in the one of the most liberal economies of Europe, which was the Dutch Republic. In Amsterdam, there were one or two guilds that allowed Jews in. And then you occasionally see Jews alongside Christians in guilds in Eastern Europe, where there were very big um, groups of 
of, of Jews living, for instance, in Poland, Lithuania, you sometimes see um, Jews either forming their own guilds or, or being members of guilds. But essentially, everywhere else in Europe, um, Jews were excluded. If you were born out of wedlock, so your parents weren't married uh, when you were born, you couldn't get into a guild. If you uh, were a member of a religious or ethnic minority, so in Catholic parts of Europe, you couldn't become part of a member of a guild if you were Protestant, in Protestant parts if you were Catholic. Um, if your skin was the wrong color, uh, in especially in um, in Iberia, in Spain and Portugal, where there were big minorities of uh, people who had been whose ancestors had been Moors, had been Arabs. You couldn't get into a guild if you, and they, some of the guilds actually described the color of skin that was not to be allowed into a guild. So if you were even a descendant of of a Moor, of someone of Islamic heritage or someone of Jewish heritage, you wouldn't be allowed into a guild. So there were all of these um, these identity based rules that said that people who had those characteristics were not allowed into guilds, and then. Each guild also charged fees um, for first for a, a young man to become an apprentice, and then if he managed to get through the apprenticeship, there was a, a whole new set of, of uh, fees that he had to pay in order to become a master. And they were quite high fees. So, so um, the average apprenticeship fee was equivalent to about 332 days wages for a laborer, so that more, really more than the working year. Um, the average mastership fee was about 276 days wages for a laborer. So it was difficult to get into guilds, even if you were male and the right religion and had the right skin color and didn't have you know something um, bad in your background. It was really something which you would only be able to do if you, um, if your, your family had enough money to pay the entry fee. Now, you join the guild. You you pay this money. You 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 cross these barriers, and that was one way in which the guilds ensured that they you know had a certain degree of dominance. They they controlled the number of, of, of what we might think of as legal practitioners of that particular profession. And yet, as you explained, that's just one way in which they controlled the markets in their communities. Uh, could you elaborate a bit on some of the other ways in which they could uh, determine the prices of goods and and uh, the, the, the various uh, uh, other economic uh, inputs that uh, you know shaped what consumers could buy? Yeah, they were... Um... I mean, as I've already mentioned, they, to some extent, uh, were they were able to actually lay down what the prices would be for their goods and services. And they could certainly uh, restrict the quantity which each master in the guild could produce. But that wasn't really their favored way of doing, uh, of controlling their market, because even in medieval and early modern Europe, it wasn't great PR to for for the practitioners of a certain occupation to be able to you know to be seen to be imposing prices that were above the competitive level. And so what they tended to do was that they tried to do things in a little bit more of an um, of a, a sort of roundabout way. So they uh, imposed indirect restrictions 
that made it more possible for them to manipulate the market in their own interests. So they manipulated uh, the market for the for the goods and services they produced. Really, they did, as I said, sometimes fix prices, sometimes restrict the quantity of output, but they also imposed a lot of little regulations that tried to limit competition inside the guild. So they prohibited guild members from selling goods that had been produced outside the guild um, by others in neighboring towns or in, in other countries. They put place limits on the amount of time their members could spend working or selling. So they placed restrictions on when, on whether people were allowed to work at night. They restricted where members could work or engage in selling. They, uh, they have some amusing regulations about not enticing away a fellow master's customers. Um, sometimes, you know, saying you're not allowed to uh, advertise your services um, too, too vigorously. I think there was one hat maker in the German city of Lüneburg who put a gigantic gilded hat outside his shop and he has a, a form of advertising and his guild told him to take it down instantly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sort of advertising, touting for customers, uh, trying to grab away one of your guild fellow guild fellows customers in the market. Um, that was right out. So that sort of internal competition. Um, there were a lot of physical limits that were placed on workshops. So the guild would mostly limit each master to just one workshop, uh, limit the size of the workshop, how many rooms it could have in it, how much raw material the master could buy or process, the number of, for instance, um, the amount of equipment in the workshop. So the number of looms a particular weaving master could have, which was usually just one or two. Um, and they also tried to limit, or the, the the guilds imposed limits on the number of employees, so the number of apprentices and journeymen and other employees that um, uh, one producer could have. So there were all of these indirect ways of trying to restrict output. And as soon as you restrict output, um, it makes it much more possible to, to and, and restrict competition. It makes it much more possible to charge higher than competitive prices. I'd like to return to something you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago when you were, we were talking about the way that they uh, managed uh, the people that could go into uh, the particular profession. You described in particular, you, you mentioned women. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that because your chapter upon the relationship of women to guilds is really an interesting one that you know elaborates much more upon this question of not just guilds, but the role of women as workers as uh, in the medieval and early modern economies. What was that relationship like in a bit more detail? And what were some of the you know complex factors at play? Well, I think one needs to start out by realizing that I think I'm not sh I'm not sure about it, but I think most of us when we when we think about the medieval and early modern economy, we think oh, it's a traditional society. That means that women were just active in the household. They were wives and mothers and they worked for within the family and they weren't participating actively and independently in the labor market or working as entrepreneurs in their own right. And this was actually something which um, I realized was wrong based on a book that I wrote um, back in 2003, which was looking at 
the economic activities of women in a part of Germany between the beginning of the 17th century and the end of the 18th century. And I was, what I did was I used um, little, the, the records, the minutes of these little church carts that met in these small villages in the Black Forest and extracted the mention, every mention of any woman or man doing any sort of work. And ended up with a database of about 3,000 observations. And I was amazed to find that women were basically doing absolutely everything that you could imagine in this economy. So they were doing heavy labor. They were working in agriculture. They were engaging in all sorts of industrial activities and craft activities. They were really, really active in the retailing sector. They were the sort of market sellers par excellence. And... I was. I realized that actually, these societies maybe they were more like um, they were more, women were more involved outside the household possibly than in some more modern societies. Once you realize that, it makes it a lot more understandable that guilds of male craft practitioners and male service providers would have wanted to restrict or exclude these extremely entrepreneurial and extremely you know uh, adept female competitors and so i think the background to um to chapter five of my book where i really look at the way in which guilds tried to control women was uh, realizing that this was not our sort of romantic picture of a traditional society where women are just active in the household. Women were really, really threatening competitors in a way <laughs> for um, male guildmasters. And one of the major things that guilds did was to try to, um, I mean, it, it was a sort of two-sided set of regulations because each male guildmaster obviously wanted his own entrepreneurial female household members to be um, uh, you know, to be helping him in the workshop, but he didn't want the entrepreneurial female household members of other people competing with him. And so the guild regulations were very much focused on letting wives, master's wives, do every aspect of the craft or every aspect of, of the service occupation, but trying to prevent outside females from being able to do things. And so there were very, very elaborate regulations that were put in place by most guilds to try to restrict women's work. And I can see why they would do that given what you described earlier in terms of how the regulations often dealt with number of apprentices, number of, of journeymen you could have, and how I could see how some masters might try to fudge that in a way by having the the women in their household who might be, who, who've who have had opportunities with the same amount of training to work unofficially and thus, you know, you know, unofficially expand the number of producers working in that shop. Yes, that was very much it. And and what you see, and also uh, women were really active in, uh, you know, what is now called in in the in uh, less developed economies now the informal sector. So women were extremely. Um, there were all of these. Uh, black market female workers that guild masters individually, they they wanted to employ these cheap black market female workers, but they didn't want their fellows to employ them. <laughs> and so that was that sort of two, two-faced um, be behavior of the guild regulations where, you know, in good times, 
the guilds would sort of turn a blind eye to their mass, their members employing black market women because this was the cost-minimizing, profit-maximizing way to go. And then when times got bad, the regulations about employing women would be redeployed in order to squeeze out female competitors. You explained that even in the uh, mixed sex guilds where you know women did have opportunities to work in a various profession that even in the in, in those guilds you still had restrictions on their ability to become masters but you also describe how you have these guilds with widows right so I was wondering if you perhaps elaborate a little bit further on what women could do in those guilds when they had the opportunity to participate in them well that was um that that was an almost universal characteristic of the of the normal i.e. all male guilds which was that um they although they didn't allow women to be masters in their own right they also wanted their own widows to be able to continue the craft workshop after the male master died either as a way of providing for the widow and the children or as a way of keeping the workshop in the family until it could be inherited by one of the surviving sons. And so almost all uh, uh, European guilds allowed what were called widow's rights. And they sometimes they were unrestricted in the sense that the widow was basically allowed to act like a male master without actually being a, a, um, a full master in her own right. Sometimes, in quite a few cases, there were restrictions placed on what the widow could do when she was running the workshop. So, for instance, if she remarried, she had to give up the workshop. Um, sometimes, uh, if it, the keeping the workshop was contingent on her having children um, of the male master or having a son to inherit the workshop, um, and often she was required to maintain a good reputation. So if the other male masters in the guild thought that she somehow, they didn't like her for some reason, or she behaved in some sexually inappropriate way in their view, they could, um, they could, they could refuse her the right to continue the workshop. Um, and then if a widow was allowed to, uh, to retain the workshop, there were restrictions often on whether she could keep apprentices or journeymen, um, Sometimes her workshop size was restricted. Sometimes she was given half rights, so she was only allowed to produce half the normal output quota for the guild. She, and usually, although not always, widows, although they ran workshops, and in fact about 8 or 9% on average of all guild workshops were being run by master's widows at any one time. The one thing that women weren't, the widowed um masters weren't allowed to do was to participate in guild decision making so they one of the things that guilds did was that they held periodic assemblies where all of the masters came to the assembly and the ordinances were read out and various um you know new masters were admitted and people were punished for having violated the rules and then everyone sat around and drank a lot at the end and <laughs> and um and the women the widowed masters were sometimes not even allowed to attend those assemblies or if they were i've got one lovely example of the rural scythe makers guild in an area of austria in the 18th century where the widows they were allowed 
to make scythes at their with their own hands, which was very heavy metal working, like being a scythe smith. So it wasn't that women were incapable of actually doing the work, but at the annual guild assembly, they weren't allowed to eat with the male masters. They had to eat separately at a separate on a separate occasion. So they they were there was this sort of social segregation between the widowed masters and the male masters, even though in all other ways, these widows were obviously big, strong women who were running the workshop and doing this heavy metal work on their own. So I think, you know, I think that guild, like all most other guilds, was sort of trying to maintain the definition of women as not being appropriate. Um, as guild masters, while actually basically letting them do it if they were the, the, the master's widow. We've been talking up to this point about the role of guilds in terms of regulating their members. I'd like to shift our focus now to another uh, aspect of guilds that you discuss in your book, which is their role in regulating product quality and the the skills of uh, of the of the members could you elaborate upon the ways in which the guilds ensured that the products produced were of a certain level of quality so as to uh you know and and, and to conform to certain standards that existed at the time yes this is one of the reasons why economists have be- been very interested in guilds in recent years is that we see them all over the place for 800 years in the past and in many other continents than Europe. And so it would be interesting to know what was their net effect on the economy, because we tend, I think, nowadays to think that cartels are not a good thing and that um, closed access organizations that keep out women and Jews, we tend to think of as not a good thing. But you have to ask yourself, was there something, were there countervailing benefits that guilds created that might have, uh, if not compensated for the fact that they were closed access and that they they sort of overcharged customers and behaved like cartels. Maybe they also created a stream of benefits for the economy, which to some extent made up for all of the bad things they did. And um, you mentioned two of the things which guilds are, are thought perhaps to have done in some cases to to um, that might have benefited the pre-industrial economy. One of them is setting quality standards because we know from the present day that there are often, um, there's a lack of knowledge on the part of consumers about the actual quality of the goods and services they're buying. So an econom- the economics jargon for that is information asymmetries. So the producer knows a lot about the goods and services he's, he or she is producing, and the consumer doesn't necessarily know whether these goods and services are good or bad. And so we tend to think markets will work much better if um, if there's some sort of certification system, if there's some sort of quality standards, um, and that's why we often do have quality marks on modern goods and services. And it is definitely the case that some guilds did set quality standards. They often, well, they certainly set one quality standard by um, by deciding who was allowed to produce as through those entry barriers that we were talking about. And they also sometimes inspected the actual wares that were produced by gilded producers, particularly we know, know most about, about them in the textile industry because many textile guilds 
operated a sort of inspection counter and each master, when he'd produced a long bolt of cloth, he had to bring it to the inspection counter. It had to be inspected. And if it passed the inspection, it got the guild seal of approval. And it really was a seal. It was a lead seal with the sort of coat of arms of the guild on it. So some guilds did set quality standards and some also enforced them. So there there was a certain amount of, you know, at these annual guild assemblies, there would be masters who had violated the quality regulations would be fined um, for, for having done so. So um, there was some activity that guilds um, engaged in. To, it was a sort of pass-fail system. So if you brought your cloth, it either passed or failed. If it passed, you were allowed to sell it. If it failed, often the guild inspectors would tear it up so you wouldn't be allowed to sell it. And um, the question then arises, was this really... Um, can we can we say that all guilds behaved this way? And that was something which, you know, did all guilds create these benefits? And that was something which I found very interesting and surprising because um, an amazing study was done by uh, an Italian scholar some years ago um, looking at thousands of Italian guild ordinances between the year 1220 and the year 1800. And he found that, only 40% of Italian guilds in, over this period actually had quality standards written into their ordinances. So 40% did, that's good, but the <laughs> other 60% didn't. So it's sort of a half full or a 40% full glass there. Um, so I don't think guild quality standards were universal, but you know, about 40% of Italian guilds did, probably a higher percentage of guilds did, for instance, in German-speaking Central Europe, where guilds were extremely strong, and they were very, very um, comprehensive and very, you know, carefully regulated. I think most, a larger percentage of the German guilds probably had quality standards. The interesting thing is that once one starts to read into the um, documents a little bit more deeply, you realize that quality regulation is, um, uh, it also has a bad side because it, obviously, it protects consumers from fraudulent goods, but it also can harm consumers by banning low quality but cheap goods because not all consumers are rich enough that they can afford the highest quality, only those goods that pass the guild quality controls. There are actually consumers out there, or there were consumers out there who deliberately shopped in the black market for non-gilded um, illicit products, which had not and possibly could not pass guild quality controls, but were really cheap. And one of my favorite stories is actually from 18th century Augsburg. There was a phrase that was had passed into um, sort of colloquial speech. Someone would say to, to his neighbor, I'm going for a walk in the country. And what this meant was walking out of the town gates of Augsburg with your old shoes on your feet, walking to a nearby village, buying a pair of non-gilded but very cheap and low quality shoes from a village shoemaker who was not gilded and leaving your your old shoes in the village and walking back in with your new ones. So <laughs> going for a walk in the country was a way of getting around the high prices that were imposed by guilds on these high quality project products, which they 
in a sense, forced consumers to buy. So there's a it's two sided. Um, if you've got a guild that does enforce its quality controls, it's probably going to mean that only high quality and expensive goods can be sold. That's not necessarily good for the poorest consumers. That question of you know what guilds were doing and whether guilds were all do it, whether all the guilds were doing it also comes across when you're talking about the development of the skills of the members of the guild. You point out how we had this assumption uh, that, that uh, in terms of what we, you know, traditionally thought about guilds that yes, they, they made sure that everyone, you know, would, had a certain level of skill achievement and that they, they evaluated this. And yet, as you explained, that also wasn't necessarily true for all guilds or even most guilds. That was astonishing to me. Um, many guilds did require apprenticeship, and we tend to think of apprenticeship as almost being um, synonymous with the concept of a guild. But I collected data um, from all of these hundreds of secondary case studies that I that I read and collected a big database of over 2,200 guilds in five countries between 1220 and 1800. And I found that of these over 2000 guilds only 43 of sorry 43% of them required apprenticeship training so again it, apprenticeship was pretty common but it wasn't even required by half of all of the guilds which we have records of um so it was you know it was it, guilds definitely did operate about 43% of guilds operated apprenticeship systems but they there was um there were a lot of guilds that didn't and the other thing that i learned was that there were there was a lot of apprenticeship taking place outside the guild system so non-guild apprenticeships were really widespread and they were particularly widespread in two countries in the netherlands and in england um where um there were lots of apprenticeships in which the kind of person who was not allowed into a guild apprenticeship was the apprentice. So there were a lot of female apprentices in England and the Netherlands. And if you compare the um, studies that have been done looking at the percentage of female apprentices in England, in the uh, the guild apprenticeships in England, there were fewer than four or five percent of female apprentices. In the non-guild apprenticeships, about 30% of apprentices were female. So there was this big demand for vocational training by girls, uh, but it was satisfied by these non-guild apprenticeships outside the guild system. This gets to uh, an interesting economic question, though, when you're talking about the, this question of regulation that you uh, then address, which is this issue of innovation. You know, to what degree did guilds encourage innovation versus, say, perhaps suppressing it for, for various needs? In, in effect, what role were they having in terms of, you know, economic development versus, say, uh, control? That's a good question, because we tend to think of innovative ideas or new knowledge as being one of the key determinants of economic growth. So trying to understand what kind of structure of economic institutions is best for innovation is a key question in trying to understand how maybe we could organize societies so that they are more innovative and so that economic growth is faster. And this is, of course, particularly serious when you're thinking of present day developing economies where either innovation doesn't happen or known innovations don't get adopted. So it's one of the big 
questions about that economists are concerned with. So guilds are, they've, there are a number of ways in which it's been theorized that possibly guilds might have been able to solve some of the problems surrounding the invention or diffusion of new knowledge. Um, there's some arguments that maybe market concentration, so having a monopolistic market structure, maybe that creates incentives for innovation because inventors know that they will be able to get some monopoly profits if they invent a new idea and it won't be competed away by someone stealing their idea right away. Um, there are some theoretical models that suggest, well, maybe um, people, uh, if they're prevented from competing with one another on price, maybe they will divert their competitive activities into innovating, trying to compete using innovation instead. Um, and in the book, I, I look at these various models that have been put forward. There's also some models that some economic models that suggest, well, maybe um, the apprenticeship system was one way for innovations, for, for useful knowledge to be passed from masters to apprentices. Um, but of course, the findings we were just talking about, about apprenticeship suggest that that probably would have happened even without guilds. So um, I look at these various theoretical models that economists have put forward for why some of the behavior of guilds might have been beneficial for innovation. You can't say for sure that guilds with their cartel behavior and their bans on price fixing and so on, uh, sorry, on price competition, weren't encouraging innovation, but there's no evidence of it. So we, we don't find any concrete examples of these theoretical models actually working when we look at guilds. What we do find when we look at guilds' behavior toward innovation is that they tended to oppose them because guilds believed that not all innovations, but that um, uh, innovations often would destroy their members' jobs. So any innovation that they thought was going to enable outsiders to compete with them or enable some of the richer um, guild members to compete more successfully than the poorer ones would cause the guild to lobby against new techniques and practices, uh, forbid their members to use them, and even go so far as to boycott goods and workers from places that adopted these disruptive innovations. And that gets to a much larger question that a lot of more specialized studies of guilds don't address, but is really at, uh, at one that you're studying naturally leads to, which is what is the relationship in the end between guilds and economic growth during this period that you studied? Was there a, a relationship that we can trace? Was it a positive one? Was it a negative one? And also, what does that might what might some of those uh, conclusions that you draw to have uh, you know, offer us to understand about, you know, how, basically the relevance of this whole issue of guilds and their role in the economy to us today? Well, it's very, uh, it's fascinating to look at the relationship between the strength or weakness of guilds and our estimates of per capita economic growth, per capita GDP growth in Europe between the year 1300 and the year 1850, uh, which is the sort of high time of the guilds because although we don't know for sh we don't we can't 
absolutely know what per capita GDP was. We've got pretty good estimates now. And so one of the things which I did in the in the uh, in chapter nine of the book was to actually try to categorize the different economies of Europe according to whether they had weak, relatively weak guilds, relatively strong guilds, or intermediate strength guilds. And in particular, after about the year fourteen, uh, sorry, the year fifteen hundred, um, guilds became much weaker in northwest Europe whereas they tended to actually become stronger in the other parts of Europe. So in Northwest Europe, in the Netherlands, which was the miracle economy of, of 16th and 17th and early 18th century Europe, in, the, in Belgium and in England, guilds began to become much weaker after about 1500 or 1550. And then there were parts of Europe where they actually became stronger. So in German-speaking Central Europe, in the Scandinavian countries, and in Portugal and Spain, you see guild regulation actually becoming much more effective after 1500 or 1550. Then you've got these sort of intermediate economies like Italy and France, where guilds are stronger than they are in England and the Netherlands and Belgium, but they're not as strong as they were in Germany and the Scandinavian countries and the Iberian Peninsula. And if you map that onto our estimates of per capita GDP, you see some interesting things because the countries with weak guilds, so England, the Netherlands, and Belgium, see really continuous economic growth, especially after 1500. And of course, we know that the Netherlands was the miracle economy until about 1700, and then England started growing really fast. And of course, England was the first uh, country in Europe and indeed in the world to experience the Industrial Revolution. So it, weak guilds seem to have been at least associated with rapid economic growth. You can't say that it was the weak guilds that caused rapid economic growth in the northwest corner, but at least having weak guilds doesn't seem to have prevented these very successful economies um, on the North Sea, uh, on in the North Sea era, area from growing um, really successfully. There's not that much difference, though, between the zones of strong guilds and the zones of intermediate guilds. And that's quite interesting because um, the it suggests that having intermediate strength guilds wasn't necessarily a good thing because there was always a lot of conflict around these intermediate strength guilds. There was a lot of black market activity, there's a lot of lobbying and litigation. And so one of the things that it might indicate is if you're going to reform your institutions, a halfway reform isn't as good as a, you know, reforming them all the way and actually um, you know, uh, abolishing the guilds. I think in answer to your final question, which is what can we learn from guilds? What kind of policy implications? Well, I think there's one general thing that we can learn from guilds about how we explain economic institutions, which is that I think there's been a tendency for economists to think, well, if you see a, a certain institution existing over many hundreds of years in all sorts of economies, it must be efficient. Um, once you look at guilds, you realize, actually, if an institution uh, is really good at benefiting some powerful interest groups and redistributing resources toward them, it doesn't have to be efficient. It just needs to have political power. And I think these distributional activities of guilds tell us a lot about why institutions exist in general. Um, 
policy lessons? Well, I think there are some policy lessons for present-day developing economies. Market failures and lack of state capacity are really widespread in developing economies now, just as they were in European developing economies in the past. But probably institutions like guilds, which create a situation of crony capitalism where organizations and businessmen do favors for the state and the state does favors for the organization of businessmen probably isn't the solution to these market failures and lack of state capacity. We've got this recurrent historical pattern where entrenched producers claim markets are failing and that they can only work properly if they get privileges. They offer favors to the government in return for entry barriers and market power, and then they share the cartel profits that they get out of that with the state. Um, these, I think the lesson of the last 800 years of European history is that that's not a good situation and that it isn't, it, that thinking that um, granting privileges to entrenched groups of producers is the way to deal with problems in the less developed world that's probably not what we want to do. You probably want to do something more like getting away from these um, these special privileges for entrenched producers. So it's in a way, it's a sort of negative less policy lesson, which is don't make the mistake that Europe did. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm, uh, I have a couple of projects going on. One of them is looking at the uh, one of the other great long-lasting institutions in Europe, which is the institution of serfdom, which was a situation where, which existed in, especially in Central and Eastern Central and Eastern Europe, where the la big landlords in the countryside had a lot of power over the peasantry who were, they weren't quite slaves, but they had to do coerced labor for their landlords. And the breakdown of serfdom uh, gradually in Central and Eastern Europe over the last 500 years or so, I think is strongly related to economic growth. So that's one thing I'm looking at. I'm even already toying with the idea of another gigantic book about <laughs> uh, serfdom. But for the time being, I'm I'm doing, you know, sort of individual analyses of it. And the other thing I'm working on is um, some papers on the role of uh, of what's called human capital investment, so education and skill in uh, in uh, in contributing to economic growth in Europe again over the last three or four hundred years. Well, I hope if you decide to undertake that uh, big book on European serfdom, you'll uh, come back and uh, agree to uh, tell us about it. Uh, tell us about that work. It'll be a pleasure, <laughs> Sheila. Uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Same to you. Bye.